Title of today's message is First Place in Everything. First Place in Everything. Do you guys know anyone that's super competitive? Maybe it's you. Um, I know some people who are really competitive. Some might be in my family. Well, people that are really competitive, you know, they want to get first place no matter what it is they're doing. If they're playing a game, playing a sport, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get first place. There was a saying in professional sports when one guy got caught, I think, doing steroids. He said, if you ain't, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And, you know, I don't agree with that, but I do believe that we should work wholeheartedly in everything that we do. That's what the Bible teaches. But I was playing Candyland with my kids the other day. Maybe you've heard of that game. And uh, you draw these cards and you get a yellow or a red or you get a little lollipop and then you go to that spot on the board. And my kids, they're really competitive for whatever reason when it comes to that game. And so they'd get like a double yellow and then they'd try to go to the third yellow when I'm not looking, you know, try to go further on the board than when I, where I'm at. And if I'm not watching, you know, they might do that. And they're always trying to beat me. And, you know, if they don't, to see their dramatic responses after the game, if dad gets first place, you know, they're crying, they're screaming. It's like I almost want to let them win just so that I don't have to deal with that at the end of the game, right? And... I do have to say I'm proud of my son Leland because a couple months ago during uh, soccer he was playing goalie and they scored like five goals on him in a matter of a couple minutes I think and um, but he had a good attitude it was a really good team and they were scoring these goals and he just kept getting right back up and he was just playing with all his might and it's like that's what we've taught them whatever you do do it all to the glory of God and so I appreciated that because when I used to play sports especially baseball if I'd struck out if I wasn't doing so well um, I would carry it with me the rest of the game if I got out that first at bat I'd be remembering it the whole game I was so frustrated instead of just being able to move on and say I did my best I did it to the glory of God on to the next thing and so what we want to remember in life that whatever you're doing whether you're sweeping your kitchen, whether you're cleaning your house, whether you're at work, whether you're serving the church, whatever you're doing, we do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, I think it's 31. Whether you eat and drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And sometimes you get first place, sometimes you don't. Now in scripture, there's someone who gets first place in everything. You probably know who I'm talking about. He passed every test. He never sinned. He never failed. Despite attempts from principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world to throw him off and trip him up, no matter what they did, however they tried to get him to fail or to fall, it backfired on them. They were unsuccessful. Christ remained and will always be the victorious one, the supreme one, the preeminent one. Colossians 2.15 Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. He totally defeated them on the cross. He made a public display. Sin lost its power. Satan lost his hold. Death lost its sting. Now we are victorious in Christ. We have hope in him because of what he's done for us. I love all the titles of Jesus. If you write down all the titles that are found of Christ and then throughout the scripture 
there's probably 50 to 100, if not more. Let me give you some of them. I never get tired of saying these. The Almighty One, the Alpha and the Omega, the Advocate, the Author and Perfecter of our faith, the Authority, the Bread of Life, the Beloved Son of God, the Bridegroom, the Chief cor Cornerstone, the Deliverer, the Faithful and True, the Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, the Head of the Church, the Holy Servant, the I Am, the Emmanuel, the Indescribable Gift, the Judge, the King of Kings, the Lamb of God, the Light of the World, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Lord of All, the Mediator, the Messiah, the Mighty One, the One who sets free, our Hope, our Peace, our Prophet, our Redeemer, our Risen Lord, our Rock, our Sacrifice for Sins, our Savior, the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High, the Supreme Creator over all, the Resurrection and the Life, the Door, the Way, the Word, the True Vine, the Truth, the Victorious One, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. That's a good compilation there, and perhaps many more. He always gets first place. He's worthy, and that's in the text that we're going to look at today in the book of Colossians. We see that Paul's intention in Colossians chapter 1, and really throughout the entire book, is to get the Colossians, these believers that are in this city, Colossae, it's in a Roman province. He wants them to see Christ for who he is. He's beautiful. He's awesome. He's glorious. Grow in the knowledge of him. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. True knowledge, according to the scripture, guards believers from philosophies, deception, empty philosophies, deception, traditions of men, Gnosticism, false religions, cults, ideologies, lies, any vain thing that comes up against the truth. How do you know a falsehood? When you're looking at religions, when you're looking at philosophies, as Pastor Joe would tell us, you look at the original. If you're looking at, how do you want to know if you have a counterfeit bill? You study the originals. You study the original $100 bill so that when a counterfeit comes across, comes by you or comes through your what you're looking at or what you, you know, this is what they do. And the CIA and whatnot, this is what I've been told, is they study the, the original. And as Christians, we want to study Christ. We want to grow in our knowledge of him, who he is, what he's done for us. The more you know Jesus Christ, the more you will be able to reject falsehood to expose falsehood listen to matthew 21 44 he who he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust who's the stone jesus christ he's the rock and whomever it falls on will be ground to dust that's what happens to wicked people that's what happens to lies when they're confronted with the truth of Christ. They're grounded to nothing. So you need to know who Jesus is. Colossians 1, 16 through 20, these are the verses that we're looking at today. Last time we looked at verses 13 through 15. We notice there that Jesus is the king, the beloved son. He's the redeemer. He's the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn or preeminent one of all creation. So today we're looking at verses 16 through 20. We're looking at eight distinctives of who Jesus Christ is and how he has first place in everything. Let's go ahead and pick it up 
verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He also is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Some translations say preeminence in everything or supremacy. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All about Jesus Christ. That's the focus. So point number one, first distinctive of who Christ is, he's the creator. Verse 16, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Here's Colossae. It's in the Roman province of Asia Minor. And if you study history, the Roman God, who was creator or God of all in their false view of the world and its beginnings, was Janus. Janus was their Roman god, or was their god of all creation. He's their god of beginnings. Britannica.com states this, and listen to the similarities of the description of the god Janus with how Paul describes Jesus here in verses 16 through 20. Britannica states, quote, Some scholars regard Janus as the god of all beginnings, and believe that his association with doorways is derivative. He was invoked as the first of any gods in regular liturgies. The beginning of the day, month, and year, both calendrical and agricultural, were sacred to him. The month of January is named for him, and his festival took place January 9th, the Agonium. So... How many of you know that January is named after Janus? Well, many of our days and months are named after these Roman gods, but here he's called the beginning. He's called the first. He's the first of all the the Roman gods. And here, Paul, as we're going to talk about in a minute, Jesus is the beginning. He's the first, first place in everything, firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. So here's Paul writing to these saints in Colossae. He's dispelling their Gnostic, perhaps, beliefs that have crept into the church, perhaps perhaps Roman paganism that has crept into the church. And he's saying, no, 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 Jesus is creator of all things. And he says it twice in verse 16. By him, all things were created. And then you look at the second part of the verse right at the end. Again, he says, all things have been created by him and for him. Surely he had Genesis 1-1 in the back of his mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's what Paul says here of Jesus, by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth. And then he goes into this list, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions. He wants the reader to understand Jesus created all things. Not some things, not just things on earth, but things in heaven and on earth. The Barnes Commentary states, quote, there could not possibly be a more explicit declaration that the universe was created by Christ than this. 
as if the simple declaration in the most comprehensive terms were not enough, the apostle goes into a specification of things existing in heaven and on earth, and so varies the statement as if to present the possibility, if to prevent the possibility of mistake. So Paul is very thorough in saying Jesus created all things. That was point number one. Number two, Jesus is the eternal one, verse 17. And he is before all things. If you remember John the Baptist and the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verses 15 and verse 30, John testifies and says, he existed before me. John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's baptizing people, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's pointing them to Christ. He's saying, I've prepared, I'm preparing the way of the Lord, and he existed before me. And then he says, right before that, he says, he has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And then he goes on to say, I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie his sandal. Now, I know people that existed before me. We respect our elders. We respect those older than us. We respect people that have existed before us. But are you going to say, I'm not, because someone is before me, I cannot stoop down and untie their sandal? No. He's saying something more than he just existed before me. I believe he's alluding to Micah 5.2. He's alluding to the fact that Jesus is eternal everlasting before him from all eternity Micah 5 2 but as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah too little to be among the clans of Judah from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel his going forth his goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity his going forth are from long ago from the days of of eternity. This one Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. No, that's not when he existed right then. He existed long before that from all eternity. And this is what John the Apostle begins his gospel with. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So God gave John the Baptist, the Apostle John, this insight to who Jesus is. John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. He's before thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Before the mountains were formed or the earth was born, Christ was from everlasting to everlasting. Point number three, Jesus is the sustainer. Last part of verse 17. In him, all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 states that he upholds all things by the power of his word. Did you know that the earth spins at 1,000 miles per hour? So they say at its, at it, its axis, axis. Do you feel it right now? It's crazy. It's spinning 1,000 miles per hour. Hold on to your seats. Okay, dad joke. But we don't feel it right just like when you're in an airplane right you're just you're going 500 miles per hour and it feels like you're walking around your living room pretty crazy but i looked up a couple articles smithsonianmag.com what would happen if the earth stopped rotating quote if that motion suddenly stopped the momentum would send this would send things flying eastward 
Moving rocks and oceans would trigger earthquakes and tsunamis. The still moving atmosphere would scour landscapes. If the earth just stopped, it wouldn't be pretty. I don't know that we'd all go flying. I don't know. I mean, that's what it seems to say here is what they think would happen if the earth stopped spinning. Earthquakes, tsunamis, things would go flying eastward. You think of the job of the president or a CEO or someone who leads a large company and all the inworkings and all the logistics and all the oversight and management that goes into that. And then you think of Jesus who upholds and sustains the entire universe. Quite a difference there, right? Quite a job, quite a task to make sure the earth is continuing to rotate as it should and that the entire universe is moving and working and kept in check as it should be. According to science.howstuffworks.com, article titled, What is it about earth that makes it just right for for life? It states that the earth has the right ingredients, it has the right crust, the right temperature, the right moon, the right star, the right core, the right neighbors. Everything is just right and everything stays just right so that life is sustained day after day in planet earth. It talks about how we have water and carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen and all these essential elements that are needed for life. This article goes on to talk about how Jupiter shields us from stellar bombardment and says that we would have 10,000 times the amount of asteroid and comets striking the Earth if Jupiter wasn't guarding or protecting the Earth from stellar bombardment. God placed us perfectly where we are, the right distance from the sun, spinning the right amount of speed and all these things Jesus sustains. He sustains our life. It's pretty amazing. Day after day. Yet if you read Second Peter chapter 3, um, it talks about how the sustainer will one day be the destroyer. Jesus, who s- now sustains the universe, will one day shortly destroy the universe. Listen to Second Peter 3, 7 and 10. It says, but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The one who sustains now will destroy during the day of the Lord, which he says he will come like a thief. He won't be like a thief for those who are looking, for those who are waiting, for those who know the signs and the times, for those who know 2 Thessalonians, where Paul says there must be a falling away and the man of lawlessness must seat himself in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Look for these things because the day of the Lord will not come until these things happen. He will not ascend and we will not be caught up in the air to meet him. Don't let anyone deceive you. Certain things must happen. And so Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 11, what kind of people ought you to be in light of these things? Because destruction is coming, because judgment is coming, what sort of people ought you to be? He goes on to talk about being blameless, being holy, being upright, living for the Lord so that when he appears, you're ready. You're rejoicing, not regretting. Not, he's not coming and you're going, oh man, I made some bad decisions. I'm not living for the Lord. It's too late. As the scripture says, sudden destruction will come upon them. When they are saying peace, peace, there is no peace 
for the wicked. So Christ not only sustains the universe, he sustains you and I. He guards us from the enemy. He protects us. He strengthens us. He builds us up. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Jupiter, perhaps a small picture of Christ, guards the earth from stellar bombardment. 10,000 times greater it would be, perhaps, if Jupiter wasn't there is what these scientists believe. Jesus guards us and protects us from the evil one. He intercedes for us. Sometimes we don't even realize it. And God is protecting us through Jesus Christ. Number four, Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. Not the pastor, not a bishop, not the presbytery, not the elders, definitely not the pope not the president, not the government. Jesus is the head of the church. He's in charge of the church. He's first place in the church. Many churches don't act like that today. There is such an emphasis on pastors in the American church and perhaps many churches around the world. Praise God for pastors. Praise, Praise God that God's raised up leaders and people that preach the word and teach. Jesus, though, he's the cornerstone. He's the head. He's the chief. He's first place. We need to keep that in mind. He loves the church. He builds the church. He bled for the church. He directs the church. He purifies the church. He's coming back for the church. It's his church. Every church needs to keep that in mind, that it's his church, that churches shouldn't be making decisions and preaching what they feel like and doing what they feel like doing. No, they need to go to Christ and say, how does, how does Christ direct his church? We need to take our orders from him and we look to his word. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sorry, Latter-day Saints. They say, yes, the gates of hell did prevail against the church. Yes, the church was corrupted and see God raised up Joseph Smith in 1830 in Palmyra, New York to bring the church back together because God told Joseph Smith, all the denominations are a disgrace. They're all an abomination. All the Christian ministers and churches have gone astray. No, I'm sorry. Acts 20, 28. Jesus, it says in Acts 20, 28, bought the church with his own blood. Be shepherds of the church of God, which God purchased with his own blood. Ephesians 29 and 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. That's what this verse states. The God, Jesus, the creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe, and he cherishes, he cares for, he's gentle with his church. So I was looking through the Gospels and I was looking at this Greek word for head because it's saying Jesus is the head or the chief of the church. I found it interesting with the correlation of his physical head, his face as he lived on this planet. Luke 7, 46, Jesus told Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Remember Luke 9, 58. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 27, 30 and Mark 15, 9 speak of how his head had a crown of thorns 
placed on it, how they beat him over his head with this reed over and over with a stick. They beat Jesus in the head. And I just thought that was interesting. Those who dishonored Jesus, those who didn't want Jesus to rule over them or have authority over them, dishonored his head. Now today, same thing. Those who hate Jesus just in period and those who don't want his authority in the church, they're dishonoring the head of the body. Figuratively beating him over the head with the way they live, with the way they treat his church, with the way they disregard his commandments. So we need to honor Christ. We need to remember that he is chief of the church. How do you do that? If you're a Christian, how do you honor Christ who's the head of the church? Well, you love his body. You love other believers. You care for them. You pour your life into them. You look for ways and how to bless them, to unify them, to serve them. That's honoring the head, which is Christ. Perhaps you've seen that show, Undercover Boss. I've seen maybe an episode, but I thought of this analogy, this illustration, if you will, of how the boss, the CEO, um, supposedly goes undercover into the business to understand what they're doing at the lower level and to maybe hear if they're saying anything about him or the higher-ups in the company, and he kind of sneaks in, and, oh, they say maybe, oh, here's a new guy, here's Tim, he's new, and they acclimate him and whatnot. And I thought, what if Jesus snuck into the church? What if he snuck into our church? What if he snuck into the Christian church, undercover boss, if you will? Here he is, head of the church. He walks in. Someone thinks it's just a new person. You know, Hebrews 13, I says, I believe it says that we entertain angels unaware to where at times an angel could appear. It's happened in the scripture where you just think it's a normal person. But perhaps if Jesus was able to do that, how would he be loved? How would he be cared for? What would he think of the church service? What would he think about worship? What would he think about the preaching? What would he think about how the church is honoring him as the head? Interesting thought, something that was, was going through my mind as I was putting this together. Hopefully he would be pleased. Number five, Jesus is the beginning. He's, uh, he's the head of the body, the church, verse 18, and he is the beginning. I'm going to breeze through this point very quickly. Revelation 22:13, Jesus said, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end." No, Janus is not the beginning. Paul's saying, not some demiurge, Gnostic god, Sophia, and whatever they believed. Jesus is the first cause. He's the authority. He has all power. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is repeated in Revelation 1.17, Revelation 21.6. Titles that Jesus took for his own self, ascribed to himself, are titles that the Scripture only gives to God. Many of these titles and what we're reading today, you can't ascribe this to a mere man. You could never ascribe these things to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the prophets. You could never say that by one of them all things were created. You could never call them the beginning. You could never say that they are before all things. Paul is distinguishing Jesus Christ as God, as eternal, as having all authority. Hebrews 1.10, you, Lord, in the beginning. This is a passage about Jesus Christ. 
you Lord in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands and right before that in verse 9 it says your throne O God is forever and ever speaking of Jesus point number six Jesus is the firstborn from the dead verse 18 last part of that verse he's the firstborn from the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything I like the NASB he might have first place in everything hence the title of the message today you can't find a more Christocentric text than this right it's all about Jesus first place as creator first place as eternal first place over the church first place from the beginning first place from the dead you can't beat him he, he wins in everything he has preeminence in everything. He's supreme over all things. Satan hates that. Read Isaiah 14, 13 through 15, where Isaiah, where Isaiah is displaying Satan's heart. I will ascend over the Most High. I will have authority. I will do this. I think I talked about that in a recent message or maybe at our home group, how the Pharisee in Luke 18, maybe that was the message last week, sounded eerily similar to Satan in Isaiah 14 as this Pharisee is saying look at all I've done I give all my tithes to God I pray several times a day I'm not like these evil people over here he's close to the throne he's pointing all attention to himself or then you have that tax collector who's just beating his chest doesn't even want to look up to heaven he's standing a far distance away and he's just saying have mercy on me a sinner Lord, would you please help me? Perhaps he didn't even have the words to say. Just have mercy on me. That's enough. God sees that posture of the heart, the humility. See that throughout the book of Luke. The thief on the cross. Lord, remember me in your kingdom. He didn't have some theological treatise. He didn't know everything about the scripture, I don't believe. Just Lord, remember me. The humility. God wants us to be humble. Satan wants to be first. Jesus is first in all things. The most famous podcast in the world today is the Joe Rogan Experience. Perhaps you've heard of it. I actually got caught up in a four-hour podcast a while back of Joe Rogan. Four hours long. He does these long podcasts with all different people from different backgrounds. And he actually had a guy named Stephen C. Meyer on his program recently. Stephen C. Meyer is a proponent of intelligent design saying look everything in the universe appears to be designed the more you look into the human genome and dna it, it it's it's just so exquisite and so vast and so just uncomprehensible do you think this just came out of nothing who just writes a book if someone came up to you and said here this was this book was written from nothing we'd all laugh when you look at the genetic code and dna it's far more complex than any book that's the basic child versions child version of the argument is there must be an intelligent design so that's what Stephen C Meyer is known for he was in that movie expelled um, which if you haven't seen it it's actually a really good movie dispelling evolution and a lot of the lies in the schools today it's an older movie maybe 10 to 15 years old by a guy who's not even a Christian but just shows all the lies in the world today so Stephen C Meyer was on the Joe Rogan podcast and Joe Rogan says, well, what are your views of Jesus Christ? 
what do you believe about the resurrection? And so Stephen C. Meyer was kind of wanting to stay in his lane and say, well, I'm, a, I'm more of a scientist and well, let's talk intelligent design, but I'll be glad to tell you about Jesus. And so he starts talking about the resurrection and saying, yeah, there's definitely a lot of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he referred him to William Lane Craig and several different books. And he gave arguments about the 500 witnesses. He gave evidence about James, who wrote one of the letters in the New Testament, who was actually a brother of Jesus who we know through the Gospels, as we read them, that James wasn't a believer in Jesus, at least at first. He was denying who Jesus was. At one point, he's, Jesus is talking about going down to Jerusalem for the festival, and the, the brothers seem to be mocking him there. Like, oh, go show, show yourself to the world if you're really who you say you are. And then it says they did not believe in him. So here's James who's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 as someone who saw the risen Lord. Something changed. He went from unbelieving to believing. He went from seeing the risen Lord to writing the New Testament letter given his name, James. And if you read the book of Acts, Acts 15, he's one of the leaders in the Christian church. So Stephen C. Meyer is walking Joe Rogan through some of these things, pointing out, this is a radical transformation that happened to the brother of Jesus. What better explanation than he saw Jesus rise from the dead? Many other arguments and evidences, some of which he gave Joe Rogan, to which he responded, essentially, well, we just he could have been hallucinating, or maybe he's schizophrenic, or we don't know the condition of James. You see, this is all they have. And the scripture says in John 3.20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. It's like cockroaches. When you turn on the light, they just go running. When you start to bring the light of God's truth, the light of the resurrection that Jesus conquered the grave, people will come up with whatever excuses possible to run from the truth. Imagine if someone like Joe Rogan did come to the Lord. He has 11 million people that listen on average, to his podcasts. YouTube channel, I think, has 20 million followers, something like that, 19 million. That's a huge audience. Imagine if today he said, I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. I'm going to follow him with my life. I want to do whatever is pleasing to him. You think that viewership's going to go up? You think he's going to have the same type of respect that he has from people in the world? I guarantee you that podcast would fall perhaps off the top 50 it would fall fast because when people come to Jesus Christ you lose a lot of things and we have to be willing to do that he who wants to save his life will lose it if you're willing to lose your life for my sake you'll save it Jesus said so there's many reasons why people don't come to Christ there's many reasons why people don't believe in the resurrection but here we see in this passage again this word firstborn preeminence the same word used in verse 14. First place over creation, preeminence over creation, firstborn from the dead. He was the first to rise from the grave to never die again. Sure, he raised up Lazarus. Sure, he raised up other people in the Gospels. They died again after that. Jesus rose, defeating death forever. He's the firstborn from the dead. John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. 
I love 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we live. Because he was resurrected, we'll be resurrected again as well. It should bring us joy. Number seven, two more. Two more points. Number seven, Jesus is the all-encompassing one. Verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He's the all-encompassing one. What does that mean? I'll try to explain it in just a second. If your car breaks down, what do you do typically? You call a mechanic. If your sink clogs up, like mine has in the past, pipes burst at your house, what do you do? You call a plumber. If you have a toothache, you call my mom. You call a dentist. My mom works at a dentist's office. So, hi, mom, if you're listening. If you have money issues, you usually see a financial advisor. And if you need construction work, any type of work around your house, you just call someone from Blessed Hope Chapel, one of the men. They'll fix it for you. Jesus, as the all-encompassing one, he has the fullness of God, according to this text, dwelling in him. Who is God? What are the attributes of God? eternality he's omnipotent that means he's all-powerful he's omniscient meaning he's all-knowing he's omnipresent meaning he's present everywhere he's immutable meaning he's unchanging he's independent and he's has necessary existence meaning he sustains himself so when you think about needing to call a mechanic or a plumber or a financial advisor or you need help in life how many times do we first go to Christ and say, man, he has all wisdom and knowledge. He has the fullness of God dwelling in him. He has all these divine attributes, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful. Perhaps I should go to him. Now, if your pipe is bursting and there's water rushing out, I'm not saying spend time and 50 minutes of prayer. Maybe get a plumber over, right? Be practical. But how many times do we neglect going to Jesus? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. He's not deficient he's all sufficient we need to go to him more any trial you go through any temptation any struggle any weakness seek him first he imparts wisdom guidance knowledge truth to his saints the scripture says keep asking keep seeking keep knocking ask and you'll receive seek and you'll find knock and the door will be opened to you i was meditating on luke 18 the first several verses couple days ago where that woman is th it's a widow she's going to this unrighteous judge and she's pleading her case over and over and over and finally this unrighteous judge Jesus says in this parable is finally like you know what get out of the courtroom I didn't mean to hit the pulpit there but get out of my courtroom I don't want to hear it anymore is essentially what he's saying you're wearing me out I'm giving you what you want I'm rendering you the verdict that you want because you have continually persisted in annoying me. Jesus is using this <laughs> as an illustration of how, now we don't annoy, not every parable, you don't take every little part and say, man, this is a totally one-to-one -one correspondence of what Jesus is teaching. We've got to be careful there. We don't annoy God with our prayers. He's saying, like this woman was so persistent with this judge that the judge rendered her verdict, be persistent in prayers to God. 
And he goes on to say, will God delay over his saints who cry out to him day and night? Will he not render justice for his elect? And I must admit, too often I just go to God with a prayer and then it's something pressing on my life. It could be something that's bringing anxiety or worry or, Lord, how is this going to work out? And I'll lift it up and I'll move on to something else. And I was talking to Leah last night about how at times in our walk with the Lord we can get anxious at times or stressed or things in life are going on and it's like in the back of our mind we're like, why don't we just pop in a movie? Why don't we just watch something? Why don't we just relax? And not that that's a bad thing to watch a movie or watch TV and whatever if it's not, you know, going against the Lord and all those things, right? But seek first the kingdom of God. Keep asking keep seeking, keep knocking. God allows us to go through certain things in life for the very reason that we'll run to him, to keep us humble, to keep us reliant on him. He's trying to teach us things and he wants us to go to him in prayer. So it's an encouragement for all of us today. Here's my last point. Number eight, found in verse 20. Jesus is the atoning one. He's the atoning one who brings peace says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And you know, the Apostle Peter says some of Paul's teachings are hard to understand, which the, unsta- the untaught and the unstable distort to their own destruction. Read all of Paul's epistles, and if you're not scratching your head at some point, then you're much smarter than I am. In this verse, it says he reconciles all things into himself, things on earth and things in heaven through the blood of his cross. What does he reconcile in heaven? How does he reconcile all things? Paul, you could have made it a lot easier. Just say Jesus reconciled all, not all things, but Jesus reconciled those who put their faith and trust in him. All right. Jesus reconciles believers through the cross of Calvary. Believers on earth. Well, he reconciles all things in heaven and on earth. We know that scripture teaches Satan is doomed. We know that the false angels are doomed. We know that those who don't believe in Christ are doomed. So what does all things mean? Things in heaven and things on earth. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 says that Jesus took on flesh and blood to redeem us. And it says he didn't redeem the angels. He didn't take on an angelic body to redeem them. Angels that didn't fall, they're in heaven. They're worshiping God. They're good. Angels that did fall are unredeemable. So many scholars read this verse and go, what is Paul saying here? And it seems that, I'm not going to give you a perfect answer, but it seems that there was obviously a huge disruption and cataclysmic event that happened when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord when sin came into the world. First before that, Satan who fell from heaven wanting to be like the most high God and then he got creation to fall and so the curse came to earth. And so Jesus in light of the enmity, in light of the destruction, in light of the division, he brought harmony between heaven and earth through the cross. Ephesians 1.10 says, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So, if you have more clarity on this verse, please let me know, because many commentators are a bit confused. But we know that there's more clarity also found in verse 22. 
Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. It does help to read context, right? Colts take one verse, they pull it out of context, and which is a pretext for error. When you continue to read the context, you see he's reconciled us. When you continue to read a verse in light of all of scripture, it brings clarity to what it means. But at the heart of this verse is that he's brought peace. The question for us today as I begin to close this out is do you have peace in your life? Do you have peace? Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Ephesians 2.14 says he is our peace. Colossians 3.15 says let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now the scripture says that we have peace with God, Romans 5.1, through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many Christians really understand that, believe that truth? Yeah, you can get caught up in looking at different verses like 20. What's all things mean here? And what's hev- how did he reconcile all things in heaven? And he... There are so many lovely rabbit trails that we can take. It's not even necessarily a rabbit trail because it's in the scripture. Rather that, but also with that, just clinging to the promises of God. How many Christians lack peace? Isaiah 26.3, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You know, and then in Colossians 3, later on, just a couple chapters later, Paul says, Set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. This earth will not bring you peace. Looking to the left and to the right, reading news articles all day long and pondering about the end of the world and getting all caught up in everything that everyone else is getting caught up, if that's your sole focus, if that's all you're meditating on, you're going to be so uneasy, you're going to be so anxious and so worried. But when you set your mind on things above, when you meditate on verses like we're looking at today, that Jesus is the creator, he is the sustainer, He is the eternal one. He is the head of the body of the the church and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the all-encompassing one. We have peace through his cross. It should bring you peace. You have peace with God because you're not under his wrath. You have peace with your brothers and sisters. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Last scripture, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What's causing you fear today? What's causing you anxiety, worry? Keep your eyes on Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the author of peace. Let his peace rule in your hearts. I love that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And it talks about how we should go to him in prayer. I'd have Leah come sing the song right now, but she's busy watching the kids. But it's one of my favorites. And how often we... (laughs) She said no. She's back there shaking her head. She doesn't like that song, I guess. Maybe it's not in her key. But, you know, all our sins and griefs to bear and what a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. 